Welcome along to the Drop the Label podcast. I'm your host, Sarah. Labels are all around us. We use them freely and often without thought. This podcast is an exploration of various labels discussed with various guests from different perspectives. We want to get people thinking about labels in their simplest form so that they adopt those that serve their higher self and drop those labels that hold them back in life. Thank you for listening. Will you drop the label? This podcast is brought to you by RT Fitness Durham and Sunderland, home of Team Carnage and the Barbell Club. We are the North East's premier transformation facility, taking you from absolute beginner to photoshoot ready. you just got to do the work. Check us out on Instagram and Facebook at the Barbell Club or RT Fitness Durham and Sunderland or over on our website, www.rtfitness.uk. Today on Drop the Label, we have Rick Frame. Rick is both a fitness instructor and a teacher. As a fitness instructor, Rick was faced with labels imposing him from his physical appearance, but he dug his heels in and didn't let them take over. As a teacher, Rick discusses the fundamental requirements of labels in order to actually help children, but the reality that teachers are humans prone to judgment too, some of which are made within just eight days and can last an educational lifetime and beyond. Enjoy. Welcome along to Drop the Label podcast. Today I am joined by Rick Frame. Oh. Rick, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes. So my name's Rick Frame. I am a teacher. I am a dad. I am a fitness instructor. Um, I am a gobshite, if you talk to my fiance. Uh, those are my <laughs> labels that I use. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a teacher and a part-time fitness instructor. That's my... And a, you know, somebody who works at, works at, somebody who goes to RT Fitness and does carnage Perfect. and enjoys it on the morning. Excellent. Good stuff. So you know what this podcast's about. Do, Obviously, do, you, you, you've, you've prepped your intro <laughs> with your labels straight in. Um, what do labels mean to you? Oh, in my work and in my personal life, labels are essential um, and also can be quite damaging. Um, so... As a fitness instructor, I don't look like a fitness instructor, or at least in my head, I don't look like a fitness instructor. Um, so as a little bit of history, 10 years ago tomorrow, um, I became an instructor for a, a popular New Zealand pre-choreographed fitness class. Um, and it was a bit of a struggle because trying to get a job, trying to get a few classes, um, I was initially knocked back and it was always, we don't look the part, you don't look like a fitness instructor. There was always some excuse. And it was clearly because I was... Um, you know, carrying a lot of weight. Um, a few places did actually give us a chance, and now um, I've got quite heavily oversubscribed classes. Right. Um, you know, I've been doing it for 10 years, so I must be doing something right. And now I teach a few different classes, um, freestyle and otherwise. Mm-hmm. So labels in that, in that example um, have been really, you know, powerful um, as a negative and a positive because the one good thing about getting knocked back is that I was determined to show them yeah. that I was um, able to do it just like anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as a teacher, um, labels are essential as well because we need to know the kids in front of us. We need to know their positives, the things that they struggle with, so we can push them forward. So labels are essential in that mm-hmm. in that respect as well. Okay, brilliant. So I think we'll, we'll take the first one first. All right, all right. We'll go down the route of, um, obviously, fitness instructor. Um, how did you feel? Obviously, you've said that you were determined then to, to sort of show them, like, I like that, by the way, like, I'll fucking show you. Um, but how did that make you feel when, when you did keep getting knocked back? Oh, sick, sickening. So passing the, the course. So one thing you have to do for this pre-choreographed class, you have to jump through a few hoops. You have to do a weekend where you do the class over and over again. You have to pass some criteria there. You know, are you competent? Have you got your know, minimal form? And then you've got a couple of weeks where you have to film yourself teaching an actual live class and you have to have pretty much kind of eight out of 10, the score you, you know, out of the different songs that you go through and the different movement patterns and the score you're on form and, you know, your coaching ability. Um, So to pass that for me, for somebody who, you know, 18 months before doing that course, nearly pushing, you know, never said this before live, nearly pushing towards 30 stone. Um, to lose a lot of weight and to become somebody who was competent and able to do it was such an achievement. And mm-hmm. I felt so proud of myself, you know, rightly so, and so did everybody else. And I got loads of, you know, positive kind of encouragement to do that by lots of different people. So to then go and, you know, the the gym that had sponsored us to do that and kind of said, okay, you can you can do the class. For then to be told, well, you do cover, but you're not going to be put on the, the main list. Mm-hmm. And why? And it was like, oh, well, we haven't got space. We have got space because I've, I've applied to an email. Yeah. And, you know, it was that kind of, it, it 
felt awful, felt absolutely awful. So, you know, to push through that, to be able to find somewhere that was willing to give us the chance, mm -hmm. um, uh, that made us even more determined. It made us more determined in the gym. So if anything, that negative label gave us an opportunity to become fitter, leaner, mm -hmm. you know. So it was an absolutely tough experience. Yeah. But looking back on it, a massively character-building experience. Yeah. I think I covered that in, in I don't know whether you've you'll have listened to it yet. I can't remember which one it was on, but I said like with with negativity that comes uh, if you if you look hard enough, there's opportunity within that. Yeah. Like sometimes you can go to really dark places, but there is opportunity there. And like you've just said that yourself in your own experience, like yeah. you could have gone completely the other direction and been like, right, okay, that's it, given up on it. Yeah. You could have let the label completely overtake you, and you didn't. You 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 saw the opportunity to improve and come back bigger yeah 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 there, there was a so there was a class i got a permanent class and i was me, my name was on the board on the little timetable and i was taking a photograph of it on my phone i was skipping around and then a couple of weeks later i got called into the office and told i was sacked and the reason i was sacked was because um at the end of the lesson the microphone had not worked for weeks and the participants had complained and i said i'm just the freelance instructor you're gonna have to take go to reception and take it up there well, apparently I was told that was the most unprofessional thing I could have said. Really? <laughs> and that's what I said. <laughs> Come again? Sorry. Um, so, and that's all I was getting. And I asked the manager, the manager who'd watched us in the class, shook my hand and said, mate, that was a brilliant class. I'm totally happy to be on. So long story short, after a bit of digging, the regional manager didn't like the look of us. I didn't, I didn't fit the brand of that gym. Wow. Um, you know, I can guess why. Um, and so regardless of the fact that the classes were packed, that the classes were cheering and whooping and, you know, having a great time, I was told. And then the partner shot was, but can you do cover next week? My goodness. <laughs> yeah. Did you do it? No. No. <laughs> I, I just told them a few choice words, which I won't repeat. Um, so that's kind of the, some of the stuff I've experienced. Mm -hmm. Cut to, again, I reckon a year or two after that, at another gym, they rang us up and said, can you come back and teach the class that you used to teach before that I'd stopped teaching? Um, and an email got sent to all 6,000 members. We've got Rick Frame back teaching the class I teach. Um, we've got him back. And walking down, and this is the time when I knew that label had switched around. Mm -hmm. Walking down into that class, I felt like kind of Guns and Roses had come back in. Yeah. Why am I here? And they were like clapping and everything. And sort of go from where somebody had said, you know, too fat to be an instructor, to we need you back. And I hadn't changed physically a huge amount, mm -hmm. but clearly that in my head, the mindset change was immense. Mm -hmm. And again, one label of, you know, yeah. too fat to two, can you come back and do this? Just amazing. It just goes to show how much people use labels and that's it. They've made the decision. They've, they've put that one label on and that's it. The decision's made without giving any sort of further thought and any further consideration of the person. Yeah, and I know we're going to come back to education, but there was a study done ages ago, kind of 60s, 70s, and within eight days, a teacher makes a label of a child. And if that eight child days. is well turned out, if they're neat, they could be a really naughty kid, but if they look neat and tidy, they'll be assumed that they are a good child. If the kid is a little bit messy, maybe not the best turned out, maybe, you know, a bit scruffy, uh, a teacher will make that, make that, thing that that kid is, um, you know, make that connection that that child is not perhaps the best child, maybe the behavior is not there. And it has a massive impact on the grades. You can have a good child and you, if you keep telling them the good, they will probably ha achieve high. Mm -hmm. If you keep telling the negative, they will maybe only achieve middle and grades. Uh -huh. Eight days. And it's hard to unpick a label once it's established for oh, the child and for the person given it. So st straight away, we see people. Um, we were talking earlier about the gym I was working in, um, a very exclusive gym in the Northeast. And this, this person came in who turned out to be a very wealthy surgeon. And he said, oh, you're teaching the class? And I said, yeah. And he's like, you're teaching the class? And he kept looking us up and down going, you're teaching the class? And I thought, well, it's not candid camera. Like, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and within 30 seconds when he was kind of like, you know, clutching his chest, breathing hard. <laughs> um, and I'm kind of looking and going, is that all you got? Are we? We've got another 55 minutes. Um, at the end, he did say, kind of, oh, wow, that was a good class, thanks. Mm -hmm. Not, I wasn't expecting that or anything like mm -hmm. that. But again, he'd made that initial, he'd taken one look at my physical appearance and made that instant assumption, that instant label that 
how can you be an instructor? Yeah. How can you move yeah. with purpose? Um, and it's it's now, and even now, you know, there's only a few kind of, the, the fitness industry itself is only really kind of starting to represent people of all different shapes and sizes. And it's not just one certain athletic form that is the de facto gold standard that everybody has you yeah. know, different fitness abilities, regardless of shape, size, age, mm -hmm. and ability. Yeah. How did you overcome the labels that were given to you? Like how, when you said obviously it made you more determined and things like that, like was there a mental process that you went through yourself? I haven't got over them yet. You haven't got nah, over them yet? Nah, still. So I can, go into, I can go into the gym now that I've been teaching for, for God knows how long. <coughs> um, and if somebody comes in with a face like thunder, I still feel sick. Really? I still feel they don't, they don't like me. They don't want me to be an instructor here. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think they might have had a bad day. I don't think, are they okay? Straight away, I think it's me. Right. I don't look the, I don't look the part. Mm -hmm. I'm going to need to work hard to prove it. And I think what's made us overcome that and keep kind of plotting on art is I know that once I start, they understand and they come back. Yeah. Once they see us move, once they see the coaching, once they understand, you know, when I'm mm -hmm. shouting, screaming, music's blasting, they understand that I've got it then. So that's what keeps us coming back. Just don't stop. Because yeah. the other thing is, if I stop, I give in to that label. Yeah. If I lose the pandemic, I was forced to stop being an instructor for, you know, the lockdown. Weight went straight back on. Mm -hmm. Mental health, like kind of, you know, being locked down, feeling, feeling kind of bad about myself, having negative self-image, skyrocketed again. Yeah. Um, so those labels are still there and I don't think they're going to go away. But how I respond to them and how I act on them mm -hmm. and how I acknowledge them, that's what keeps us going in the right direction. Yeah. Would you say they were improving over time? Because, I mean, obviously, you, you go to, to RT Fitness in Sunderland, so I've yeah. never coached you, but I know that you're probably one of, if not the fittest person in there, and you can move and... You, you know, you, you put, you know, I'll say the younger people to shame and the people who you expect to be able to move better, you you are more than capable and you move better. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's so me time training. It's, it is its form, so... Oh, I'm trying to think how to, how to kind of put it. Yeah, those labels over time wax and wane. So you've said that, I'll be strutting out of here at the end of this. Um, <laughs> but when I first walked into RT, after not doing kind of the carnage, you know, high intensity stuff in a while, just kind of doing, you know, just, you know, pumping iron as it were, to use the old fashioned word term. Um, I was terrified. I was terrified, you know, obviously my fiance goes to the class as well. I know how she moves. She moves as well, better than me. So I was like, oh God. Um, I'm going to have to really work at this. And the only thing I knew is I know I can lift. I know the form. I know mm -hmm. I've got good form. I know yeah. what I'm doing. I know how to initiate a squat and things like that. But straight away, I was having to take options on things like planks and burpees because I hadn't done it for so long and held it yeah. for that sustained amount of time. Yeah. Um, so I felt a bit of a fraud. When we had our first discussion, I said, oh, I'm a fitness instructor, kind of part-time. But, but he can't even he can't even do a plank for a minute. And obviously building back up to that um, because it's it's obviously the specificity of training. So the labels were kind of eaten away at us there. It was like, <laughs> I need to be this super fit person. And, but that drives us as well as then, I know I can do this. Mm -hmm. I know it'll come in time. I know I've got this. And then obviously, you know, with the kind of success I've had with becoming leaner, with becoming fitter at the classes, then obviously the labels, the positive labels kick in then and kind mm -hmm. of keep us going forward. Yeah. It's crazy how everyone sort of assumes, again, with the whole PT, you know, fitness instructor that you'd be able to do a certain thing, like where you were saying there, I couldn't do plank for X amount of time. It's like, is this some sort of preconceived idea that PTs and fitness instructors can do absolutely everything? Like they are literally, they can do anything you put in front of them fitness-wise, they can do it. It is, it is. I think it's an imprint thing. I've, I've talked to some people about this before as fitness instructor and the PT that I, the PT that I've I worked with for a, a few years, is your imprint on that person a bit like a baby bird um, <laughs> or something like that. And you expect them, because that's where you're getting your knowledge from. That's where you're getting your kind of coaching from. Mm -hmm. So you expect them to know everything. So everything they put in front of you, they're, the, they're, they're your mentor, they're your yeah. Jedi master type of thing. Uh -huh. So they have to do it. And I think people come into the classes expecting the same thing. Yeah. Um, so if you're doing a high intensity aerobic class, you know, and you can't jump out of a burpee, mm -hmm. 
that could people can look at that and go, that's inauthentic. You're not fit enough. You're not a you're not a bona fide instructor. Whereas other people can look at it and think, I can't do a burpee either, but mm -hmm. they're doing it, so I'm going to do what they do. And yeah. then obviously a good coach would coach options where you know, yeah, you don't have to do a full burpee yet. We can work up to that, mm -hmm. and that's something I'd uh, because I've come from that because I've my very first going into a commercial gym and doing my very first class back in 2011 when I'd made the decision, you know, for me for me children, um, I'm gonna be fitter. Um, I waddled in and I could barely do a, a press up. But over time, I went from my knees, I went in, you know, from the box press up, you know, leaning forward into the final kind of, you know, pushing up some press ups on my toes until it became, you know, standard. Mm -hmm. And I think coaching that and getting people to understand that helps people push past labels, push past that negative image they've got of themselves of, I'll never be able to do that. Yeah, yeah definitely. I remember coming back after, um, well, it was during the lockdown and doing the, the videos. So we did all of the home workouts um, and Ross roped me into doing some of the carnage ones now. Everyone, everyone in RT knows I'm not a carnage person. I do weights, I lift weights, I don't do carnage. So I'm coaching carnage live with people on my screen, on Zoom, looking at us. I'm absolutely blowing out my arse, trying to give instructions, thinking, Mel, we're going to like absolutely hate this session because like, I mean, at one point I'm sitting on the floor going, <sighs> <laughs> nah, nah, and I've come back and I've, I've gone straight back to my weights, to be fair. But it, it, I think it must, some of them were like, geeing me on a little bit, like, yeah. come on, hurry, let's go. And I think obviously that, that always helps. But I even had those views of myself, like, I can't do it. Yeah. I can't do it, Ross. Like, seriously, I'm blown out my arse. <laughs> oh. So authenticity, authenticity was something that the, the fitness class, the kind of that training, it was it was a, a kind of pillar. You've got to be authentic, so you've got to do the moves. So mm -hmm. if you're lifting a weight in front of someone, it's got to. For me, if you're lifting a studio weight, even if it's you know because it's, it's not maximal weights you're lifting for endurance. So if you're going to lift something, it's got to be a weight that challenges you, mm -hmm. because that's going to come through in your coaching. Mm -hmm. They're going to see, as you're saying, you're blown too. Where if you're lifting, you know, two and a half kilograms on each side of the bar and everyone else has put an extra weight on and you're kind of just skipping around, not breaking a sweat, mm -hmm. people pick up on that. Yeah. And I think one of the key things that went through my kind of fitness journey and now it's part of me kind of, you know, me makeup is authenticity is key. Mm -hmm. Because if you come across as fake, it's just not worth it. Mm -hmm. um, so as a label, being authentic is a massive thing for me. Mm -hmm. So I've got to be able to do that move. Even if I can't do the move and I do an option, I'm still doing that move. Yeah. And it's, you know, you just don't stop because yeah. that's the, the key. I think even authenticity from a perspective of it, it, all walks of life, yeah. whether it's authenticity to, to a specific, specific job that you're doing, um, like you say, obviously demonstrating that, you know, you can lift a weight and you can struggle. You go through the form, you do it right. You're human as well. Yeah. Um, I think from a, a personality perspective and, you know, every element of life, that's authenticity's key. Because yeah. even coming in and sitting and doing this podcast, I said to Ross, like, oh, like I, I'm well out of my comfort zone, but I'm more than happy to talk about it because one, it makes me feel more comfortable because I've addressed it, Yes, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think people can tell with me when I'm not being authentic. Well, that's it. Yeah, so my fiance says, says something similar in the fact of when I'm not happy with something, it's just all over my face. Mm -hmm. You know, our favourite thing saying to us at the minute, it's like, tell your face that. <laughs> so it's straight away because I can't hide it. Mm -hmm. I can't I can't put a face on. If I'm unhappy, I'm unhappy. If I'm happy, I'm happy. And, you know, I wear my heart on my sleeve. And to me, I've got to be because I can't, I'd hate for people to think I'm not being, you know, forthcoming with stuff and I'm being mm -hmm. inauthentic. So it is just, it's, it's just a pillar of my, of my personality now as well as everything else. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So with the whole um, fitness instructor and PT situation, yes. um, obviously you've talked about your weight already. What, what do you think it is um, with you? Would you say it was, it was more food? Because quite clearly, you know, you're super fit. Um, you know, would you say it was more the food side of things that, you know, you struggle with? Definitely, definitely nutrition. I'm just a greedy boy. <laughs> so at the end of the day, I just love me scran. Um, I think as well, so thinking about this, me mum and dad were overweight and 
they tried, they've, they've tried, my mum to this day is still trying to, um, you know, she's always kind of watching what she eats. And they didn't have, looking back now, they didn't have the education, mm -hmm. you know, she was trying to keep to a thousand calories, which we know now is like, yeah. you're starving yourself. Yeah. She was, you know, eat low fat, eat low fat, rather than just, just eat normally. Yeah. Um, and sometimes she was successful and sometimes she wasn't. And they weren't, they weren't the fittest of people. They weren't the most active of people, you know, getting out for walks and things like that. Because to get fit, you have to be on a bike. You have to do something. Mm -hmm. There wasn't just, just get out and walk, get your steps in. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know that and they didn't know that. Mm -hmm. So I think I learned, or rather didn't learn enough. I didn't have a good enough fitness role model. And in, in school, in, you know, you're looking at kind of early 90s in secondary school, you did football, you did rugby, you did athletics. Mm -hmm. Very rarely did you get into a gym. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a particularly sporty person at all. Can't right. stand, can't stand football. Just not, not my <laughs> thing. Not my thing at all. But lifting and fitness, I could, I could do it, you know, you yeah. know, noon till night. So I think for me, my thing's been a lack of education and a lack of, a lack of knowledge, a lack mm -hmm. of awareness and, you know, a bit of a dopamine addict. So I clearly get, you know, a, you know, that little dopamine hit from shoveling chocolate in. So for me, it's a sweet tooth thing. Yeah. Um, so I think that's where me weight's come from. Mm -hmm. And over the years, cause I've always been at the gym. I've been going to the gym since I was a kid and doing, you know, being not mega active, but being quite active, but I never had the consistency mm -hmm. and I never really knew what I was doing. Right. Know, didn't really have the internet to kind of go and look at a YouTube tutorial or, you know, read up a, a plan on, you know, like we've got now. So I just didn't have that knowledge. So for me, I didn't really find fitness as in the training protocols and kind of really getting into the science behind it till I was 32 and I'd started kind of doing a level yeah. two gym instructor course. Yeah. And that's when for me it hit. And that's when I started to understand that stupidly everything's linked in. If you move more and eat less, you lose weight. Yeah. So <laughs> who would have thought it? It was that simple. Um, but even then I've struggled with it. So I lost, I mean, I lost about eight stone from 2011 to about 2015. And then with various things, you know, work, you know, as, as you kind of get promoted in work, you know, you have less time. Um, as my kids were growing up, I didn't do as many fitness classes. Um, so I started to move less and the weight started to creep back up. Mm -hmm. Then obviously lockdown happened and I just, you know, become a professional eater, it seemed. In lockdown, <laughs> just, you know, let's cook some more sourdough. Um, so I've had to kind of stop that. Yeah. And then obviously RT was the way I uh, I kind of found that because my fiance had been going for about 12 months. So I kind of joined in and thought I need to change up, you know, just going to doing weight isn't enough. I need to get kind of a, a bigger calorie burn and I need that accountability of checking in with somebody and saying, this is what I've ate this week. <laughs> this is when I've been to the petrol station for a brownie and a coffee. Um, <laughs> and so we've obviously, and obviously, you know, the results have spoke for themselves. I'm back on the, back on the right track going where I want to be, mm -hmm. get in preparation for an upcoming wedding. So. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Sweating for the wedding and all that. Yeah, oh yeah. yeah, just a bit. <laughs> well, the fiance is doing a good job as well. Isn't she is, she? yes. She is. So yes, I think um, definitely as a duo, you're absolutely hammering it. And you're so look mint by the wedding. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, hopefully. 100%, 100%. What I like is the fact that you, you, you know, you haven't let the stereotypical labels hold you back. No. Obviously from the fitness, fitness instructor perspective, that's one thing, but then, then from the fact that you like food as well. Um, you know, I've touched on it. I think um, Nikki's is out on, on Sunday. Um, she was talking about through her life, um, it, it, it has been a food addiction. She'll quite openly talk about it. And she said, you know, it was all to do with actually managing, managing herself and knowing that she can't just eat stereotypically clean foods to be stereotypically like leaner. Um, because it didn't work for her. She still needed to be able to have that flexibility to enjoy the foods that she enjoys. And I think as a society, that's that's what we have to always remember. We've got to find that balance. Yeah with what works and it's 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 that label of a healthy person, a healthy person looks like this and they eat this and it's totally wrong, completely wrong. Oh yeah, when I started out in 2011, I've done all the diet, I've done the paleo diet and I spent about eight weeks just eating like, you know, nuts, seeds, eggs, meat. Mm -hmm. um, and I lasted eight weeks and I got some good results from it. But then I remember being in a cake shop with me two little ones at the time um, and they had a piece of cake and I remember sitting there just going, <laughs> smelling it like some massive addict and I was like oh this isn't right this isn't right and then the minute 
And I remember being dead calm and dead chilled because obviously my sugar, my sugar intake had just dropped. And then I remember having a piece of cake and it was like Jekyll and Hyde. I could have just lifted the table and run off and started smashing stuff up. I'd <laughs> instantly got massively grumpy right. um, due to the, just the intake of sugar after nothing for eight weeks. Uh -huh. um, and it was quite obvious by then that's, that's not going to be sustainable and that's not going to be healthy. Yeah. Um, and I think the happiest I've been looking at nutrition since I've kind of, since you know, my 2011 epiphany um, has been with RT and that focusing on eat what you want, mm -hmm. but just track it yeah. and just keep within a limit. Yeah. Um, and obviously sometimes we don't and sometimes we do. Yeah. Um, and obviously it's the balance because the more times you do, the more results you get. So that's at the minute, I feel this is the kind of best I've felt with my relationship with food. Right. Um, so. Oh, well, that's good. Hopefully that continues. Well, it's got to. <laughs> it has to. <laughs> it has De to. Definitely, definitely for the wedding. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's interesting where you said about the, the sort of education element as well with um, the fact that your, your parents, you know, weren't educated on nutrition. There wasn't that knowledge there. So when my grand died, we went um, to my grand's house and we're digging out our cupboards, as you do, come across diaries and all kinds. But I found this... It was an envelope, believe it or not, and it was full of diet ideas. Do you know that you get out of magazines? Right, yeah, yeah. And bless her heart, she'd literally cut them out. She'd cut them out, all of these male ideas, all of these diet plans with how many calories you should be having and stuff like that. And no matter how much I tried to tell my grand what you should be eating, she wouldn't listen. Um, but she kept all of these snippets that she'd cut out of Hello Mag... Is it Hello Magazine? Or, or no, maybe it's not Hello... The older ones, I can't remember the names of them, but she's cut all of them out and she's kept them. And I was like, eee, bless her. Like, that's what she went to for her nutritional education. It's very, very much the same with me mum. Very much the same with me mum. I remember, I, you know, there would be things on the TV and it'd be like, send a self-addressed envelope to get this diet plan. I remember when, obviously, you know, as, as I was getting into a teenager and kind of, you know, she would never say, I'm too big. But she would always be, come on, we've got to eat healthier, eating too many sweets, blah, blah, blah. And she would try, bless her, to, to not let me fall into the pitfalls she'd, fell, she'd mm -hmm. fell in. But it was things like, right, I've put loads of carrots in the fridge, in, in a thing of water. When you feel hungry, just get a carrot. The carrot doesn't taste like galaxy, though. <laughs> and it was that thing of, you had, again, it was like a kind of late 80s, early 90s thing. It had to be, you had to change what you ate yeah. very much to lose weight, which is totally the wrong way to go. Because mm -hmm. if you're an emotional eater, rightly or wrongly you get something from having that comfort food hence the word comfort you get yeah. a certain element of comfort and that's essential for people that's not gonna you can't just go cold turkey on that because you're taking away someone's security blanket yeah. so you need to reframe that whole approach to nutrition mm -hmm. by it's okay to have that but you don't need it as much it doesn't have to be the comfort blanket and slowly taking that away rather than here's a carrot yeah <laughs> <laughs> um because, you know, put a carrot on a Sunday dinner, brill. But to have a, you know, when you think, God, I just fancy something nice, just fancy a little biscuit or something like that, mm -hmm. have a carrot, get it out. <laughs> <laughs> so it was my mum's desperate attempt for that, which I think is what she struggled with um, to this day, to, to a point my dad still really struggles with. My dad cannot do portion control mm -hmm. and really struggles with it. And again, like you said, no matter how much you tell them, no matter how much they've seen, you mm -hmm. know, a change in me, He's still stuck in his ways, and I think that's going to be something he's he's got for his you know lifelong now. You know, yeah. He's in his seventies, so it's a tough one. So obviously, you work um, in education, yes. and we've touched on nutrition. Do you think that'll ever, like nutrition education, will ever see itself in mainstream mainstream schooling? It's it's trying. It's, it? it's trying. Um, we still get the kind of the government agreed stuff, which is all very much carbs, proteins, fats, and it's all very one template suits all. I think there needs to be the idea is that everybody is different, especially at the especially at the age range. So I teach secondary. You know, kids are going through puberty. They're all going through different goal spurts at different times. You can't just stick. This is the this is the amount of food you need because everybody is different. Um, so there's a it's it's slow and it's going to require nutrition experts who are actually clued up, not government backed nutrition experts, to kind of push that forward. Mm -hmm. But I've run a couple of prom boot camps for the kids, 
because I've heard girls, I'm not going to have any breakfast for the next, from now until July, and this might be in January. Yeah. And I'm like, well, not only is that really bad for lots of different reasons, but your concentration and your, and it's always the GCSE kids who are going to finish school and go to a prom. They're not going to have anything to help them concentrate nutritionally. Yeah. That's going to last them through at lunchtime. Or they'll just eat pasta. I'm just going to have pasta because pasta's healthy, but they get a huge tub of pasta and nothing else, so it's just carbs. So... I try to explain to them without telling them what to eat, as in you need, you know, if you are eating meat, if you're vegetarian, this is something you could look at, this is something you could look at, if you're not, if you're vegan, this is something you look at, to try and get them to say, try and eat three meals a day. Yeah. Try to get them understanding the difference between muscle and fat, because they still don't know. Yeah. Um, you know, all of these things that, again, could be from parents who, you know, aren't fitness, uh, you know, orientated, so don't have that knowledge. Um, and then obviously running boot camps because they've said, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to run round. And you'll see them pelting round doing this run. And it's like, that's not going to get what you want. Yeah. Um, so I've done these little fit fitness boot camps with them um, and try to kind of bring this education in. But because it's just an after school club, the schools don't take it seriously. And I think, you know, Department of Education really need to look at how to teach nutritional advice yeah. um, and exercise advice to kids rather mm -hmm. than just the kind of, one single template for them yeah we um well ross did it um an old friend of mine actually was a teacher and she was a teacher in junior school and she asked if she could bring a class cross um talk about nutrition and and do like an hour-long session and from that moment ross said never again um because the we got the attitude to start with there might have even been year seven you know but we got the attitude to start with of like they were taking the mick a little bit out of what was getting said and then we started like asking them about diets that they were aware of and it was quite clear that they'd picked up on what the parents were doing so one of them's like Weight Watchers, Slimming World, one of them came out with a special care diet and it was like wait you know how's it working for your parents? Wait they lost weight but then yeah so it must work and then it was like this whole backwards and forwards between Ross and these kids you can imagine Ross trying to be on his best behaviour. Um, and then one of them was like, well, we were like, what's your diet like? What do you, what do you eat? And things like that. And um, Monster. I was like, what? <laughs> Monster? I can get them for like 50 pence a can if I buy four. And I was like, right. So, you, you know, do you have one a day? No, no, no. I have them all in one day. And they were like, oh, my God. Like, <laughs> that's so bad. That is so bad. But they don't realise it at all. And it's just like, well, it helps, helps keep us awake helps us get through the school day and it's like mad to think that from su such a young age we start of thinking we start to think of things that get us through the day yeah rather yeah, than yeah. fueling us in the right way through the day the amount of kids who don't have breakfast the amount of kids who have monster or sweets um come into school because again they'll walk past like you know a supermarket where it's on offer and you know sometimes a two liter bottle of the ones that's popular at the school I'm at is the Boost Caffeine Drink, so kind of like an own brandy style thing. And these kids will be drinking two litres of this highly caffeinated, highly sugared, carbonated drink, and then wonder why they crash out and are hyperactive. Mm -hmm. They'll also be on their Xbox till three, four in the morning, quite yeah. often. And it's trying to understand, and we've just done actually, funnily enough, at the school I've done, we've just done something about sleep awareness, sleep health. Right. Um, and again, it was it was sent by somebody, by some kind of educational company. Um, and it's very much, you need seven hours sleep a night. And that's great. And that's a good guidepost. But however, not everybody will get that. Mm -hmm. And there's other things to do, like turn your devices off. But telling a teenager to turn the device off at that time. Yeah. Um, personally, with my kids, I put, well, for the two youngest anyway, not the oldest because she's 18. Um, so the two, two youngest their their devices switch off i've got because i'm an it teacher yeah. um put the settings on so they switch off at nine o'clock so they've got that kind of last hour at eight o'clock for the youngest um so they've got that hour where there's no draw read whatever but yeah. no screens yeah and then get as much sleep as you can and they're both like the kip they're like me so it's all right <laughs> um but the amount of kids who are coming in like zombies mm -hmm. due to the sleep and what the drink is is a massive endemic mm -hmm. um and i think that would go towards wouldn't solve but it would certainly go towards improving behavior and grades yeah if they just fueled were fueled right there is a thing on at the minute it's a bit of a government initiative putting breakfast clubs on mm -hmm. where kids can come in and get a decent breakfast mm -hmm. now it might be bagels it might be cereal but it's actual real food it's not 
just some sugary caffeinated rubbish. Yeah, because we try and um, we try and get the boys to have breakfast. Um, and, and Jake, the eldest, who's in comp, will sometimes say, well, sometimes I'm not hungry. And it's quite hard for me when he talks about it because I was never a breakfast person when I was at school. I never have been. I never, I'm not now. Um, so it's quite, quite a difficult one for me because I think even breakfast to a certain extent isn't for everyone. But I think, I suppose, looking at a school day, you know, you can't just go and eat something when you when you do eventually get hungry. Like sometimes I'm hungry at 10 o'clock, sometimes it's 12 o'clock. But if you're in the middle of a class, you can't just go and eat something. And if you can, it's going to be a snack on your break, which is going to be a pack of crisps out of the vending machine, isn't it? Yeah. So I suppose it is important to get kids to eat something. It's, it's getting them to understand that it's not just about feeling hungry. You will feel better. You will not feel as miserable. You will not feel as as tired mm -hmm. if you get a good a good good breakfast in but my daughter's going through that phase at the minute of um don't don't fancy breakfast mm -hmm. can i just get something later yeah. no because i don't know what you're having have something now honestly it'll make you feel better and it's been a bit of a struggle but slowly getting there yeah um because i was the same but yeah the other thing like the hydration for me is a massive thing so i'm constantly drinking water and the kids want to drink water and there's obviously a water fountain that can go and top up the waters but Due to the fact they like to go on a wander when they're bored, <laughs> the schools put a rule in, you can't go in the middle of a class to top up your water. And to me, it's like, but you're effectively dehydrating them. Right. I know it's only an hour, I know it's a behaviour thing, but we really need kids to be able to have a drink when they have a drink, and mm -hmm. it needs to be water. Mm -hmm. um, so I think as a school, and I think, you know, as a country, we need to look at that. Kids need to be hydrated because, again, it's going to help them function. It's going to help lots of different aspects of the physiology. Mm -hmm. It's a habits thing as well, isn't it? Because in its learned behaviour, still to this day, I'm absolute shocker with my water. You know, obviously, I should know better. Label. <laughs> Nutritionist. Yeah, I should know better, but I struggle with water. I really struggle with it. And Ross gets onto me all the time. He's like, you're getting a migraine again. Yep. Have you drank your water today? No. And it's like, I turn into a teenager when I roll my eyes. Because I know, I know exactly what's going to come out of his mouth as soon as I say, like, I'm starting to get a bit of a migraine. Have you drank your water? No. And, like, that was never ingrained into me as a kid to drink water at all. We didn't have water fountains in school neither. It was just... No, God, I remember, I remember primary school coming home and kind of, like, chugging cool water on mm -hmm. a hot day because you just didn't, didn't need water. You had water at dinner time. When else do you need it? Yeah. And, again, we're not going to... We're not going to get to the point where we're, you know, we're in danger. Our lives are in danger. But how better? How better is it to have a water fountain and be able to have a drink when you need that drink? Mm -hmm. The obviously downside, and again, teachers' bladder. Teachers' bladder is a real thing. Yeah. So that that kind of iron cast bladder that teachers have, because if you do drink lots of water, you then constantly have to go to the toilet between lessons, and you can't do that all the time. Yeah. So then you're kind of dancing around in a lesson trying to teach, um, you know, <laughs> or holding on to it. So. Um, it, hydration, you know, is something else that needs to be taught, definitely. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So I'm going to go back when, when we started talking, we were talking about labels and education, because right. this, this bit intrigues me massively, because I said in the very, very first podcast about how we get labels from our parents and now yeah. how, how we get labels through friends at school and, and then obviously how teachers label us. And then you said there about the eight days, Yes. It is to form an opinion on a child or, or put a label on a child. And when you were talking about it, saying, oh, like, you know, if they're very smart and everything else, yeah. um, then they're likely to be labelled as a good kid. But then maybe if they were a little bit scruffy, they might be deemed a, a, a naughty kid or a yeah. bad kid. Yeah, yeah. The first thing that came into my head of a kid coming into school dishevelled would be what's going on at home. Like, is, is that something that gets sort of labelled within school as well? Or? We do. So labels are essential in the fact we need to know the kids in front of us because if we've got a kid who all of a sudden stops engaging in education, the question is why? Mm -hmm. And there's various, you know, there's an act, the Keeping Kids Safe in Education Act, which all schools have to use and we have to, to be fully aware of it every year and update with knowledge every year. And it's to know the signs when something's not right. So we need to apply labels to kids you know, does that kid need an educational need? If that kid's blind, what can we put in place to make them succeed? If that child has a negative home life, maybe, maybe the substance abuse or domestic violence in that, in that child's life, what can we do to A, keep them safe, but also support them in education? 
because then you're going to get a kid who comes in and, you know, they might have woke up, God knows what they've experienced before they even get to school. The last thing they care about is learning, you know, mm -hmm. how to program a website or how to speak French. They just want to get through the day. So of course they're going to be, you know, they've, their time at school might be the only respite they have from a really negative experience. Yeah. So they don't care about behavior. They don't care about grades and things like that. They care about it's their brain. Mm -hmm. We have to apply labels to them so we know who's there. I've had times in the past when I've had a child and I've sat there um, in a parent's evening and the mum said, oh, well, they lost the dad last week. And I haven't known about that. Just, just it may not be communicated. Um, I need to know that because I will then adjust how I approach that child mm -hmm. to make sure that they're supported. You know, they don't need to worry about learning that week. They've got much bigger fish to fry. But obviously, I then need to know later on down the line, I am going to need to help them catch up yeah. so they can still be the best they can be. So labels are essential in that. Mm -hmm. um, the problem is, though, with with teachers, you know, the best will in the world, we are going to uh, give the give the kids labels. And the danger is that we teach to those labels. Yeah. So if we've got a school with a high amount of social deprivation, you might have a lot of children who don't have the best um, clothes, who may not appear super smart, mm -hmm. who may not have, again, the, the knowledge from the parents that education is something to be, you know, proud of and something that is a gift, not oh, school, I hate school, me, because yeah. my mum didn't like school. So if we've got a lot of kids like that, it's going to be really hard for teachers to think of those kids as somebody who can achieve. Mm -hmm. But teachers have to, because otherwise we're, we're condemning those kids to only ever kind of, you know, hitting the middle of the road, or God forbid, for totally failing. Yeah. So we need to look beyond that. And it's really difficult. Mm -hmm. It's really difficult. Um, I'm not there yet. I still struggle with it. Because, you know, if you've got three dodgy classes in a row, by the end of that class, you're like, I just need them to go. I just need them to be, <laughs> just please, please go. Um, and you struggle with it. So you need to kind of, you know, look back and think, that child, you know, doesn't come from the best home life. What can I do to help them? Yeah. That child's having a really bad week because they've just lost somebody to COVID. What can we do to help them? Mm -hmm. And it's it's focusing on that. And the other thing that that's kind of come about from the kind of, um, it was like Ray Rist and um, David Hargreaves, like studies done ages ago, was that that eight-day labelling, you, you might see a child and the really good child who's naughty, and you might go, oh, must be having a bad day. But a child who's naughty and then has a day where they're acting really good and trying really hard, teachers are more likely to go, that's weird. Yeah. They'll totally, dis they'll totally kind of absolve that nice kid of bad behaviour, but they won't acknowledge that kid's good behaviour. Mm -hmm. And so there's quite a few kids who will slip through the cracks, I've got no doubt, in education. Yeah. Because the teachers have wrongly labelled them as a bad kid. Yeah. So that's where labels become an absolute nightmare. So it's it's walking that fine line in teaching between using labels effectively to support kids, mm -hmm. but not condemning them to what you think they are. Yeah. Because, you know, we all know that story of the kid who may not have had the best home life and is you know, manage to saw and make themselves better in the kind of upward mobility that the government wants. Yeah. Us all to kind of push in schools and give every kid an opportunity. But it's much easier said than done. It's great on a manifesto. It's not in a, in practice. I was going to say, because at the end of the day, teachers, teachers are just people. Yeah. And with the best will in the world, you do automatically label and you do automatically judge. And it's... It must be hard. And I dare say there's some teachers out there that they've got the weight on their shoulders. My mum used to be a teacher in comp. And now she's, um, she works at the college. as uh, She does teach some, some sessions as well um, in engineering. And I talk to her about grades, especially through COVID and things like that. And she's, she's like, I'm responsible for 200 kids, like well, young adults. Yeah. What I mark them could make or break their future. She's like, that's how much responsibility is on my shoulders. I mean, we're having a discussion about whose job was the hardest at the time. So, <laughs> you, you know, you can imagine, <laughs> well, my job's harder. Um, <laughs> but it was like, I know she has the weight of the world on her shoulders and she does, she, I think she gets very attached and she knows if someone's having something going on and she really tries her hardest to help them overcome things that's yeah. going on. But similarly, I know that there's other teachers out there who 
couldn't give a chuff. Something's disillusioned them with teaching. They've, they've always wanted to be a teacher, then they've become a teacher. And then for some reason, something's just flicked and and the, the not. They're not there anymore in the sense of where they were before. And then I think that's where it becomes damaging because then surely if you're in comp and you're going from one teacher to another to another for different topics, yeah. and then there's this one teacher got a right bee in the bonnet about you, yeah. it can start to affect the other teachers' opinions of you as oh, well. Yeah. There's, there's, there's low, I mean, God, that's a, that's a podcast in itself, an education podcast in itself. <laughs> there's obviously targets that the government and that schools want. And there's a, there's a nightmare scenarios where you'll get that kid needs to get that grade. Mm -hmm. And no matter how much of a professional you say, but that kid can't get that, or that's going to re be a real struggle for them because, mm -hmm. you know, that's not there. And it's who sets those grades and there's, there's discussions about that. So you can't just say that kid needs an A. There might, there might be no way in hell from it, whether it's a social point of view, they might just, you know, if they've got bad experiences, bad home lives, you can't expect that kid to get a grade that particular grade, but mm -hmm. they can get whatever they want. And it's it's kind of, so the government shoves these targets in and then the schools shove the targets onto the teachers yeah. and then the teachers feel stressed. And then if you've got a kid who's who's not really bothered about that grade and you're trying to shoehorn, you need to do this work. Well, I'm not doing that work. Mm -hmm. It creates a huge problem. And then they get stressed because you're putting that label of, well, there's a lazy kid. You're getting stressed as, well, I'm being labeled as a bad teacher. Mm -hmm. And it creates a huge problem. And I think that's something, again, the big education reforms needed on. We're not making tins of beans. Kids will get the grades they get. Mm -hmm. And if teachers are given the autonomy to push them and not be forced into certain templates, I think it would be a much, a much better outcome. And I think teachers would relax more with the kids who are having bad days, who are a bit naughty, yeah. um, and not kind of be as judgmental for those negative labels that we push upon them. Mm -hmm. I feel like sort of as the, the more we go on in time, the more pressures are put on in terms of targets and performance of the teachers themselves, um, but of the kids as well. But at the same time, you're sort of throwing all of these targets and stress and pressure. And with the other hand, you're taking away basic sort of ability to be able to tell a child off for doing something wrong yeah. for fear of the parent coming in and going absolutely ballistic with you at parents' evening and saying, you failed my child. It's like, it's politically correct, political correctness, but not, if that makes sense. It, it, there's just expectations now of teachers aren't kind of disciplinarians like they mm -hmm. used to be. And I'm not saying we should bring back the cane or anything like that. But there is a thing, you, you will tell parents, this is our behavior policy. If a kid does something wrong, they'll get a 15 minute detention. Mm -hmm. And they'll sign a little agreement. And then what will happen is that kid will do something wrong. They'll get a 15 minute detention. You'll ring up the parent. The parent goes, no, they're not doing that. Mm -hmm. Well, they are because that's what you've asked us to do. Yeah. And it's it's that thing of the parents want us as a kind of childcare provider. Mm -hmm. Not always, of course, but there's sometimes they want us as a childcare provider and they want us to teach their kids, but they don't want us to tell the kids what to do. They don't want to tell us when the kids are wrong. Mm -hmm. So we've went from a situation, I mean, God, I've been teaching 15 years, but I remember back when I was a kid, if I'd got a detention, my mum would have been, well, what have you done wrong? Yeah. Now the parents will be on the phone saying, my kid hasn't done anything wrong. Yeah will they have because yeah. i haven't just given them anything for nothing mm -hmm. um and it's again it's that approach and i think it's a generational thing mm -hmm. i think as the the you know the government's successive education kind of policies take and behavior and diluted it you can't send kids away you can't expel kids because that looks bad and you know if you expel a kid you ruin their future chances which i agree with mm -hmm. But if that kid is a danger to the other 30 in the classroom, then that kid isn't suitable for that school. Yeah. And maybe we need to look at more behavior units. Yeah. And it's it's that kind of, you know, we're constantly being, we're trying to do the best job we, kid for the, we can do for these kids, but people are taking away and cutting everything out, all of these avenues where we can help yeah. the mental health for kids mm -hmm. is dire. We need much more. Mm -hmm. The government said it's a priority. And the government makes it a priority by telling us schools we have to do stuff about kids with mental health. So we try and do the stuff we can, but because we're so limited for time and resources, we just have to tick a box. So the kids might get told, think about your mental health. Here's a poster on the wall. Yeah. We need more approaches to it. I mean, my school has a, has a, has a good approach and they've got people in place like counselor and counsellors and support there in place. But other schools are going to really struggle for mm -hmm. that because they just don't have the capability to, to bring that in in the way mm -hmm. it should be. I think sometimes we run the risk as well. I know um, our eldest has talked about it 
um, they get given words and they're told of words, but then, then they're not elaborated on. Mm -hmm. They're not discussed enough. So then the kids come home with these words like stress, anxiety, depression, but they're like, well, what is it? Yeah. And it's, and then they start thinking about, well, what actually is it? And then uh, it's one of those discussions where it's like, well, we need to really think about how we're going to approach this topic with you because kind of the school's thrown a grenade in there to put a poster on the wall to talk about it, but then that's as far as they've gone, that's all they've done. Um, and I think there's a bit of a, a danger in that as well. Oh, massively, massively. We need more time. I've seen, I've seen an assembly where in five minutes they've talked about a really, really important topic. It may be something like, you know, internet safety. And it's been, you know, effectively the kids have come out with the message just because the way they've interpreted it is like, I can't go on Facebook. Facebook is full of, you know, predators. Mm -hmm. That's not the message we're given, but that's the message they've taken because yeah. five minutes isn't long enough to get a topic like that across. Mm -hmm. But there isn't sufficient capacity in the school day to develop mm -hmm. your kids, to give those kids that cultural capital that they need to understand how the world works. That needs to be happening at home. Yeah. But because it doesn't always happen in, in the house, it gets pushed on the teachers. So yeah. there's constantly that seesaw effect. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately messages get muddied. Yeah. So it's, it's, it is tough, but just trying to get the kids through everything and, you know, make them happy. That's ultimately the aim. Yeah. Are they happy? Are they safe? Are they doing the best they can? Do they feel supported? Mm -hmm. That's, that's all we can do. And, you know, that'll work for some and not for others. Mm -hmm. Definitely. That's quite a, we could talk about the education one for quite a while, yeah. couldn't we? I think I might have to get you back on and go down that route again. I like that one. Get me books out. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to ask you one last question. All right. Just to wrap up. So if there was one label in the world right. that you could totally get rid of, like no one would ever use this label or think about it or uh, be given it or anything, or think, give it to themselves, whatever, what, which one would you like to see eradicated and skinny. gotten rid of? Skinny. Skinny. Hate the word skinny. Right. I use it all the time. Even now, <laughs> I just want to be skinny. I, I, can't, I can't wait to get in my wedding suit, but I need to be skinny. No, I don't need to be skinny. Skinny's mm -hmm. not a good aesthetic. Skinny's nothing. But for all of my life, being skinny, being thin, no, I don't want to be. I want to mm -hmm. be strong. I want to be beast. I want to be, like, yeah. you know, lean. I, even lean, I don't like too much. Right. But it's skinny. It's not about being skinny. Mm -hmm. If you weighed 50 stone but looked like Beyonce, you wouldn't give a shit what was on the scales. The word skinny, ugh, get rid of it, burn it. I agree, actually. I, I, don't, I hate the word skinny. And if you call a bloke, if, if I was to call a bloke skinny, they'd be how long? Because a bloke doesn't want to be skinny neither. They, don't, they want to be muscular, don't they? Yeah. They never want to be skinny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and our teacher, once when I lost loads of weight, said, all right, skinny. And after thinking, all I want to be skinny, I don't want to be fat anymore. And then this first person actually says that to you. And I was like, you fool, what? <laughs> a beast, a machine, strong, but no, nah, not skinny. No. <laughs> Champion. Well, on that note, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure having you. I definitely want to have you on again. Thank you very much. <laughs> a pleasure. I'll be here. I'll be here. Just Champion. let us know. Thank you very much. Thank you.